Welcome to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. Be sure to stay tuned to the end of the show to hear how you can get a copy of this program and other helpful documents. And now it's time for Carrie McCoy to get all up in your business. I'm Carrie McCoy, and it's time for me to get all up in your business. By that, I mean to say, share my business knowledge and wisdom with you, our listener. For the next hour, my guest, a fellow entrepreneur and a community activist, will be discussing how we maneuvered the path of leadership and entrepreneurship in pursuit of our dreams. We'll be answering questions and giving advice via phone and email. Now, you may be asking yourself, what qualifies this lady to do this? And the answer is easy experience. I started my company, Arkansas Flag and Banner, over 40 years ago. During the last four decades, Arkansas Flag and Banner has grown and morphed from door-to-door sales to telemarketing to mail order and catalog sales and now relies heavily on the Internet. Each change in sales strategy required a change in company thinking and procedures. My wisdom, confidence, and my company grew. My initial $400 investment now produces nearly $4 million in annual sales. In this next hour, you will hear a candid conversation about real-world experiences of determination and luck on topics I hope you'll find interesting. So be prepared to hear our truth. It's not always easy to hear. For example, with success comes the burden of responsibility, not just to yourself, but to others too. Also, there are a few, there are very few overnight successes. Starting and owning a business takes persistence, perseverance, and patience. I worked part-time jobs for nine years before Arkansas Flag and Banner grew enough to support just me. It's now grown and expanded so much that to operate efficiently, we require, are you ready? A purchasing, manufacturing, graphics, shipping, technology, accounting, marketing, sales, and customer service department, plus a retail store. 25 people make their living from working at Arkansas Flag and Banner. I am super excited and pleased to have my guest today, Wade Ratke, a community and labor activist who, in 1970, founded the Association of Community Organizations for Reform, now better known as ACORN, the largest organization of lower-income and working families in the United States. Ten years following the launch of ACORN in 1980, He also founded the Service Employees International Union that helps organize and give voice to public workers, school employees, Head Start, healthcare workers, hospitality, janitorial, and other low-wage workers in the private sector. In 2008, Wade resigned as ACORN's chief organizer, but he continues working and organizing their international arm. ACORN International has offices in 11 countries, some of which are Peru, Canada, India, Kenya, and Italy. He is the publisher and editor of Social Policy, a quarterly magazine for scholars and activists, and has published three books. Currently, when not traveling, he lives in New Orleans, where he owns the Fair Grinds Coffee House, a limited liability corporation. This social venture business experiment is donating profits and available gross revenues to the developing countries from where his coffee beans are grown. The beans are then imported directly to the port of New Orleans and roasted locally, thus benefiting community jobs and union workers. This is the continuation of a calling he has had all his life. Welcome to the table, superstar activist, socially conscious, Wade Ratke. Terry, I'm so glad to be here because I also uh, act as station manager of KBF, and your show has just been a hit for us. Everybody is so proud of the work you all do. Really? Oh, yeah. 
Thank you so much. You have a show. Yeah, my show is every Friday morning. And it's called Wade's World? Wade's World. uh, And what's its premise? We interview the most interesting people in the world. Why have I not been on? Probably because I just hadn't scheduled you yet. That, what's, Tim, what's the right answer here? Uh, you, you, know, you just gave it. Yeah, good, good, good. I, I know uh, somebody sent me an email and said, remember, uh, you're on so-and-so and so-and-so. So, uh, you know, if I just had some help, I could I could have uh, – I'm lucky to have a guest sometimes on Fridays. Do I'm you, hustling. You do it out in New Orleans, I guess, because I know you don't live here. I don't live here. When I'm here, I try to do a live show. And then the miracles of modern technology, I have a little – Recorder, I can uh, I take with me and record people wherever I am, and then I Dropbox it in. And Russell Carpenter here puts it on the AV, and boom. Do you have a secretary or an assistant? How do you do so much? You know the the key thing in terms of particularly international work is it wouldn't be possible without things like Skype which is a free phone call system, email, which means that you can communicate very quickly with people, the fact that English has become uh, lingua franca in the world now, so there are many people who know English, uh, even in India. India, obviously, English is a secondary language, but Kenya is also uh, my organizers in Italy and France uh, all speak English, so that's for me, who's try- trying to barely get through on English, that uh, makes a big difference. But uh, you have to be well organized. You didn't even graduate from college, did you? I left running. Yeah. You know, I didn't graduate from college either. You think you can do that today? I think uh, they try to claim if you want to, you know, create a tech startup, uh, want to be, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or something, that, uh, you know, finishing school is a liability. I, I don't know. You know, I was in school at a time where the world was changing in the uh, middle, late 60s, and you were either part of the problem or part of the solution, and by God, I thought the world was changing. If I didn't get out and do my part, uh, what was going to happen? And it turned out it was a marathon, not a sprint, and... But once I had dropped out of school the second time to organize, it turned out this is something I could do. So I found my calling, and I didn't need to go back to school. Well, that brings me to my first question. You were born in Laramie, Wyoming. Laramie, Wyoming. You grew up in New Orleans. I, you know, went to high school in New Orleans and was never going back. Uh, I was, you know, raised in the West, so that was too flat and too hot for me, and then... uh, you know, 1978, I moved uh, our national office from Little Rock to New Orleans just because we were expanding so much in the U.S. You couldn't catch a plane in Little Rock oh, without to going that. to Memphis or Dallas. So it was, I was, we had to go somewhere and it ended up in New Orleans. And then you were schooled in Massachusetts. Briefly, I went to, uh, I did two years off and on school in Massachusetts, Williams College. And then you came somehow to Little Rock and founded ACORN in 1970. What could have led you to Little Rock? June 18, 1970. had been working in Massachusetts uh, organizing welfare recipients who were trying to get uh, achieve their rights and, and uh, against the stigma of being on welfare in the late 1960s. And the National Welfare Rights Organization was headed by a guy named George Alvin Wiley. He was a uh, a Ph.D. In, in physics who was, uh, had been a professor at the University of Syracuse. He left uh, to be part of the Civil Rights Movement as Deputy Director of CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality. 
and he founded uh, around 1966 National Welfare Rights Organization. Well, the long story is they were trying to win adequate income, and he had raised some money in New York for what he called a Southern strategy because the two congressional people that were key to increasing welfare benefits were Russell Long, who was a senator in Louisiana at that time, and Wilbur Mills in the second congressional district of Little Arkansas. Rock, Arkansas, yeah. Right. So he knew I'd spent time in the South. Uh, he was speaking. I was uh, running Massachusetts welfare rights at the time, and he was speaking at Harvard. And I saw, I saw him, you know, about 20 feet behind. It was a very bitterly cold night, and he was uh, talking to my uh, woman, who was my ex-wife, and uh, I asked uh, her later, well, what was George talking She said, wouldn't you like to go back south? Because she was a New Orleans girl. You don't, you don't want to live in Massachusetts, do you? Well, once I found out what he was talking about, he was trapped. He'd raised this money for a southern strategy, and he didn't have anybody who was willing to go to the south. I wanted to try this thing that was in my mind called ACORN, given the experience I had. I wanted to broaden it from welfare recipients to a large organization of low- and moderate-income families. So... I talked to people in Georgia. Um, they weren't as interested. I looked at California. It didn't make sense. But uh, I talked to people here in Arkansas, and they were enthusiastic about this idea of ACORN. So I told George, yeah, I'll go do this thing. So June 18, 1970, I showed up to satisfy uh, their commitment to do something in the South and to, with George's blessing and the leadership's blessing at the time, to try this multi-issued, multi-constituency uh, organization, ACORN. I don't think anybody realizes that ACORN was born in Little Rock, Arkansas. Well, it's not something we're holding secret, but they may not put it out in the Chamber of Commerce news. <laughs> they should. There should be actually a bust of you with a plaque talking about Arkansas and ACORN and what a great thing it is. It is the largest organization of lower-income and working families in the United States. Is it still? It isn't still in the United States because of the sort of Breitbart news and other attacks in 2009, 2010 after I left. Yeah, um, we need had, to talk about those after the break. That's going to be a good story, I bet. Well, I don't know if it's a good story, but we'll talk about whatever you want to talk about, Carrie. That's, uh, was that's Acorn's ori- was, was uh, Association for Community Organization for Reform now Acorn's original name? Flying out of Little Rock, the first time I ever came to visit, and I'd never been here even though I'd lived in New Orleans, I started scribbling on the back of an envelope what possible names could be. And I was looking for something that was a good acronym and something that people could draw and came up with ACORN. Originally, it was Arkansas Community Organizations Reform Now. And then in 1975, when we expanded out, we just slipped that association in and, you know, away you go. I've heard that the A originally was for Arkansas. Absolutely. That Absolutely. should be on your plaque under your bust I in your story. I think in Little Rock where they would put that bust. I think we <laughs> should put it in the parking lot of Dreamland Ballroom when we get Dreamland up. Well, there you go. And you better put a fence around because it could get rough around there. I mean, they, there's still people in Little Rock and around that Did see you? me just as a dangerous person. I don't believe that. Uh, we'll talk to Brother Glenn Beck or some of the, you know, Bill O'Reilly or, you know, some of the bright well, I don't think people. Bill O'Reilly's going to be on the air anymore. Well, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? I don't know. I have no opinion. That's, this is a great time to take a break. <laughs> Once in my life 
gonna feel real good. Gonna make a difference. Gonna make it right. As I turn up the collarbone, my favorite winter coat. This wind is blowing my mind. I see the kids in the street with not enough to eat. Who am I to be blind, pretending not to see them? I've lived in Little Rock all my life and only recently learned that Acorn was founded in Arkansas. I want to make sure everybody realizes that. And that the A in Acorn used to be for Arkansas. For many years. Were your parents service-oriented, or where does your social justice ambition stem from? My mother was uh, from Drew, Mississippi. My father was from uh, Orange County, California. They met uh, during the war in the way that so many people, you know, they weren't that socially conscious, but the times that I was raised in, particularly it was an era of the civil rights movement, of um, you know concern about Vietnam uh, and things like that, you had to make decisions in your life in the middle of nineteen in the middle nineteen sixties that you weren't necessarily prepared to make. So you went from Laramie, Wyoming, to Mississippi, to New Orleans, to Massachusetts. I went from Laramie to Wilson Creek, Colorado, to Rangeley, Colorado, to Irving, Kentucky, to New Orleans, and then I went to uh, Massachusetts. Was your father in the service? No, he worked for an oil company. So, how old were you when you? became an activist? Well, I first dropped out of school to organize against the war when I was uh, 19 and went back to school for one semester and then dropped out to organize with welfare rights when I was 20, and then I was 21 when I started ACORN. That's very young. Why? Oh, well, you know, when you're that age, you think you know everything. It's That's It's only true. as you get older you realize, oh, my God, I didn't know a damn thing, and here I was... Uh, but, you know, yeah, it was, we really thought we knew something at 21 back in the 1960s. Well, I think you're idealistic. Why do you think ACORN was so successful? I think uh, we had a very uh, disciplined organizing model that was easy to replicate uh, in a lot of places in the country. The fact that it was based on membership who paid dues, uh, uh, like a labor union in the community, if you will, was very important. And I think... What we were trying to do attracted fantastic leaders and, and organizing staff. So people wanted to, to build a mass organization that uh, stood up and stood with uh, and had uh, created a platform for low and moderate income people to find their voice. You know, I think it kind of was the time also. Uh, there's no question. Because that. I think people are uh, leery of institutions today suspect of them. Well, we were you building know? something new. I mean, I think in, in a funny way, you'd like to believe that this particular moment right now um, in 2017, you can't tell, you know, where this might all lead to. I mean, it's not a movement. Uh, in the 60s, there was a real sense of movement, and I think ACORN benefited from uh, that sort of sense that more things were possible. This is a time where a lot of people don't think that much is possible. But what we've seen just since the election last year is certainly something different. There's a movement. There's a level of activism. People, you know, I see and hear from around the country, you know, if they're looking for 100 people, all of a sudden 300 people will be there. If they're looking for 300, 500, 
I mean, there's people really looking to participate in a different level. So whether or not there's uh, there are organizational formations and people who respond to that now, I don't know, Carrie. But yeah. it just seemed like an opportunity to me. Yeah, I think people maybe the grassroots way is a way to start again because I think there's a diminishing trust in institutions, which maybe why Acorn failed in the in 2010 that we were talking about is that because Acorn had an excellent record for decades and did enormous amounts of good work and goodwill for lots of people, and I know it had to be disheartening. It was your brainchild, and it faltered in 2008. Did it make you want to quit on being socially active, or did it give you more resolve to work harder? Uh, more of the former. I mean, I'm uh, the kind of person who goes to work every day. This is uh, difficult work, and there's no shortcuts uh, uh, than doing the work every day. So uh, I had left my work at Acorn in the U.S. sort of, you know, determined to do more on the international level as well as uh, the other project I was involved in. And um, watching, once you leave an organization, uh, as I did as chief organizer of Acorn, uh, you really can't do much, even when they're under attack. I mean, you can't jump back in. You can't, you know, sort of whisper from the back. I mean, you've got to hope for the best. And Why can't you? Because... Uh, Leadership in uh, Acorn had a governing board that was elected, and uh, I had a lot of confidence in the leadership. Um, they had made some decisions around staff management, many of whom had worked for me 20, 30 years. So I had a lot of confidence uh, in them. At the same time, I think they got caught by a perfect storm, and in some ways, uh, once you, they were wrong-footed, in that storm, it was a level of attack. Uh, a lot of the people, I think it was disoriented for them. A lot of our friends and allies ended up not standing with them, whether in Congress or in financial and business sectors. Uh, a lot of the agreements we had with banks and others uh, because they were caught in their own problems in the bailout. Uh, it was exactly when the banking... Yeah, it was just sort of you couldn't have asked for a worse confluence of events. And I, I just think building an organization is always a fragile and tenuous kind of, of enterprise. But in the, the ACORN situation where you had an aggressive, direct action mass organization that was never going to rank high on everybody's popularity poll, God love you for the nice things you've said already, Carrie, but we weren't going to win a contest for, you know, we would have been right there at the – in the Trump, uh, you know, popularity polls, 30 and 40 percent perhaps, except in our constituency where Acorn is still a golden name. If I go into neighborhoods where we organized uh, anywhere in the last, you know, 45, 50 years, it's, you know, welcome and hello and hugs and kisses and uh, when are we going to start again? But I, I just think once they'd gotten a couple of bad hits, they just couldn't get up fast enough and then as some of the money became more difficult for them to manage. I'm not saying it was the same decision I would have made. I would have been foolish enough. I'm old school. I would have, you know, they used to have a, a, a rule in unions, a rule of seven, as long as there were seven, because when the union is on strike and you get beaten, there goes the union. But there is a rule in many uh, union constitutions that 
the rule of seven, as long as there were seven members still ready to pay dues and say there was a union, then you had a union and you could come back. I was more of that old school. So I would have, I've often said if, if I'd still been running ACORN when it went through the attack in 2009 and 10, I'd probably be the last person collecting the last $10 a month dues and, um, would it have been different? I don't know. But the important thing is that you have to keep working for change. You have to keep trying to organize. You have to keep going to work every day. And how do you, you know stay that op- as a how small How do you stay business. optimistic? I do find sometimes that stuff after the 2008 banking crisis and the fall of ACORN that sometimes I've, I do get a little listless and kind of think, what's it all about? And how do you stay motivated to keep striving for change? Well, I think. The important thing, people often used to ask me, well, what do I get from my dues? Well, you get the opportunity to work together with other people and the opportunity to fight. You get the chance to fight for change. There's no guarantee you're going to win. In fact, the whole notion of fighting for social change is you're going to lose more than you win. So I was either foolish or lucky enough to always believe the odds were against us, uh, not for us. And in the first Years in Arkansas where, I mean, the first organizing committee we ever put together in Pine Bluff was broken up by the Klan. What? Boyce Alford uh, was a legislator from down in Pine Bluff, uh, used to go in the legislature in the early 70s demanding uh, resolutions be passed where we had to, you know, deliver our membership list to them. Well, none of that was constitutional or legal, but it was all... You know, red baiting and, oh, you know, the communist scourge. And, you know, they were all in the early 70s, you know, wild and foaming at the mouth. And that's just the way these things are. So I just had a different perspective. I mean, part of conflict is what comes with building an organization like an acorn. Not like a radio station or not like a coffee house. But certainly with an acorn, you know that you're in for a hard slog. And you don't mind. So now you work internationally. Can you tell us about that and how many days you're out of the States? I travel about half time, whether it's here or abroad. And, uh, you know, that's been the way it's been for me since 1975. So it's not something I don't know how to do. It's not my first rodeo, so to speak. And uh, internationally, there are two kinds of programs we're involved in. One is we work in mega slumps. I mean, part of what I wanted to do more of when I left ACORN U.S. was organized in the poorest communities. So San Juan Laragancho outside of Lima, uh, La Matanza outside of Buenos Aires, the, the NESA outside of Mexico City. These are the largest, uh, you know, Corogochu and uh, other slums outside of, you know, in Nairobi, um, uh, Dharavi and Mumbai uh, in India. These are among the top ten largest slums in the country. So the what world. do you do for them? We don't do anything for anybody. I mean, we organize membership organizations. And then um, you become a voice because you're a big membership? Right. Not a voice, uh, more of an active presence uh, demanding change. So you go to lobby for them? You go to... Well, I mean, in... uh, You use that money that you drew out as a membership to go and spend it on... With you know, politicians? The, no, or you don't spend it with politicians. You spend it in the organizing process, which is communication with members, uh, hiring and training organizers, uh, getting transportation for people to go to actions, buses, or whatever it is. What people do with the organizations is identify issues that have been longstanding grievances. 
And then yeah. they show up for a march where they think their political some figures marches, are going to be. Some rally, rallies. Sometimes we can get uh, political and corporate figures to come look at the issues we're talking about. You know, Mumbai is an interesting situation. We work in Dharavi. We have uh, a variety of programs from very direct action to a thing called uh, Dharavi Rocks, which is a, a rock band of uh, young people who live in the Dharavi slum, who it's largely percussion instruments on recycled materials. Um, and they've been invited to perform all over India and get a huge amount of publicity. We have... And then they speak on... And what are they trying to change? Well, I mean... Dharavi is, uh, Mumbai is an 18, you know, 20 million mega center of a city. And Dharavi is under huge uh, pressure because it's a slum of uh, close to a million people. It's right in the middle of Mumbai. So around, if, if I'm standing uh, at our recycling center where we organize uh, waste pickers, if I'm standing there, I'm looking at giant high-rises of luxury apartments that are being built uh, sort of out of the mangrove swamp all around there. What Dharavi is is a slum where people both work and live. So you have the recycling industry and tanning industries and other things, and you have people living right next to it. So the problem is there's huge developmental pressure. One of the things that we've had to fight for along with many others, not Acorn by itself by any means, is delaying the relocation of people because the Mumbai, or they call it the Bombay Municipal Corporation, wants to allow development of high-rises in that slum. And then the people are displaced? Exactly. And and it's a worse problem than that, Carrie, because it's one thing to move people, you know, 15 miles out to the suburbs. But here they're living where they're working. So even if they're out here... You can't necessarily relocate their work. So it's been one of those things where even uh, Prince Charles, when he visited uh, Dharabi, said, you know, this is sort of the ideal sustainable community because you're living and working, even though it's obviously a very desperately poor slum. But that's been part of the problem is how to allow people to continue to have workspace and living space that's decent and affordable to be able to maintain livelihood. So how do you pick and choose of all the things that are wrong all over the world? How do you pick and choose which ones? Where you have somebody, where you have a connection with somebody or, or, or a conversation with somebody, and they say, you come here kind of like you did when you came to Arkansas. You you have somebody who's got funds already and needs somebody to organize there, and that's how you pick and choose where you go. Or how do you decide? That, I mean, everywhere's got problems. Everywhere does have problems, and uh, there's only so many resources, and there's only so much time in the day. So you can't. I mean, the tragedy is you can't be everywhere you need to be and want to be. Um, and we never are able to grow as fast as we'd like to grow. Um, so we're in about 18 countries now. When it, when it has to do with first world countries like Italy or France or the UK, um, there we just train organizers. We don't have to raise the resources. When it has to do with India or Honduras or, or Kenya, we have to raise the resources to be able to support the organizers and support the work. Um, and that's a harder slog because a lot of people don't care about what happens in some slum in Nairobi or some slum in Mumbai. Right. Um, and that's that's part of why we created a social enterprise. Uh, the coffee houses you mentioned earlier, Carrie, is mm-hmm. 5% of their gross 
goes to Acorn International to support those organizers in India and Kenya and Latin America. Oh, I'm starting to see the connection. Yeah, no, it's all, you know, organically, you know. So you're super busy during the 70s and 80s. You started this radio station. Why did you start a radio station, the voice of the people? Very simply, we uh, tried to win lifeline utility rates in 1976. What does that mean? We had a proposal. Inflation was high at that time. Both Arkla Gas and APNL at that time were raising their rates through the roof. Um, And we proposed lifeline rates, which would mean a fixed amount of money for the first 400 kilowatts of electricity used so that senior citizens and low-income families at a fixed cost could at least be sure they could have lights as a necessity. And we put it on the ballot. It was amazing in the, the end of the campaign, they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to beat us, which was part of, I'll come back to it. We ended up winning that election handily. We then lost in court because it turned out there were 13 or so customers who were part of the first uh, Arkansas electric cooperative that uh, were able to go to court. Uh, Hillary Clinton was one of uh, their lawyers representing them. Hillary? Well, she was a you know, young rookie lawyer with the Rose firm. She was just there for the ride. But regardless, uh, it impressed on me that we didn't have the resources to contend on an election like that with media. So there was a guy trying to build a non-commercial station in in Dallas, who we were working with somewhat with our Dallas office named Lorenzo Milam, who sort of I later came to know as the godfather of non-commercial radio. I went down, our staff in Dallas wanted me to meet with him. I met with him. Uh, he wanted us to help run his Dallas station. We ended up taking that over over the years. But one thing led to another. He said, okay, look, uh, you have an office in Tampa. There's about to lose their license in Tampa. If you could find this guy... Uh, you know, in Tampa, you could do it. And I said, well, how about Little Rock? Well, he said, I, I can, you know, I'll have the engineer look. And he found there was a frequency here in Little Rock. It was 100,000 watts. So we applied for this in 1978. And then it took us quite a while to get on the air because the station at UALR didn't realize there was 100,000 watt frequency. They're available. Available. And there are only 12 of them in the country for non-commercials. So they pitched a snit and delayed it with the FCC, hoping they could, you know, convince the FCC they should have the 100 times. Well, I don't, you know, hey, 35 years later, so I have no hard feelings. But the long and short of it is we finally got on the air 32 years ago with a 100,000-watt station. We did build a station in Tampa and in, uh, in Dallas. Um, and now we're putting a small station on the air in New Orleans. So it'll be on oh. June 1st, yeah. Boy, great. Congratulations. We found the United Labor Unions in 1980, and it had five locals. Uh, it was came right out of the experience of Acorn members. Uh, we used to tell them, hey, if you have this problem with a job, contact so-and-so union. Uh, you know, if it's a hotel worker, contact the hotel workers union or whatever. And we were naive community organizers. We didn't realize a lot of them, a lot of the major unions didn't have organizing departments in, in the mid-late 1970s. So finally, when our members kept raising it, uh, you know, fools go where wise men and women fear to tread, we said, well, we'll just organize these unorganized <laughs> workers ourselves. So home care workers uh, we kept finding in Boston and Chicago, uh, small shops in Detroit, and uh, 
hospitality workers in New Orleans. So we organized locals in those five cities. We quickly learned between 80 and 84 we were, you know, caught in some battles that were bigger than we could handle with ACORN support. So at that point we affiliated all the five locals that we'd organized with the service employees. Um, and, you know, for 25 years, uh, our local, like the one in New Orleans, I worked with Local 100, was part of the service employees. We would then in Is it still around? Uh, yeah, but in 2009, we went back to being Local 100 of the United Labor Unions. Tim, didn't you say you worked for them? I worked for SEIU. I did. Yeah, well, SEIU is a great union. I was on the international board for eight years. It's just... Um, when ACORN started having its time of trouble in 2009 um, with uh, James O'Keefe and Hannah Giles, um, the Secretary-Treasurer happened as the first videos came out to be testifying to a congressional committee, Anna Berger, and she was asked by somebody, do you have any connection with ACORN? And for some reason, Sister Anna just wasn't thinking and said, no, none at all. Well, of course, I was on the board and, you know, we did four or five million dollars worth of contracting, uh, organizing campaigns. Oh, it looked like she was covering something up. Well, no. So within, I was in Toronto at the time and I got a call from the Secretary Treasurer, I mean, from the Vice President saying, you know, Wayne, we've been... We've been talking for a long time. We know we, we owe Local 100 money, and, you know, your local is sort of multi-state, and it's not just in one jurisdiction. I mean, we work in SEIU. They like, you know, all clean, all health care, all this. But we were all everything. Because at the time we started in the 80s, we were all there was. Um, so, you know, what we decided, uh, you know, and one of the, the officers that, you should just go back to being independent. We're going to let you have, you know, all your members, all your contracts. We'll just, you know, we're not going to, we'll just call it even Stephen. And, you know, I said, look, I, I've been with you a long time. So I know you could have tried to trust me. I know you could have tried to merge me. I think it's a pretty good deal being independent again. I'm happy as I can be. So, yeah, send me the letter. I won't complain to President Stern. That's my boy. <laughs> um, so we were delighted to go back to being independent. Oh, well, good. Yeah. So I think this is a great time to take a break. When we come back, I want to ask Wade about his quarterly magazine, Social Policy, and I want to talk to him about what he thinks the biggest issue is facing American workers today. Fight the power, 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 fight the power
through your mind. Now that you realize the prize of us, we got, got the pump to start to make it hard. I'm the hardest to start a work of art to revolutionize. Make a change of this place. People, people, we are the same. No one, not the same. Cause we don't know the game. What we need is awareness. We can't get careless. You say, what is this? I love it. Let's get down to business. Mental self-defense of fitness. You're listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. I'm speaking today with Wade Ratke, a community and labor activist who started ACORN and is currently working in the international arm of ACORN. He also writes a quarterly magazine, Social Policy, and I want to know what the mission and why you started this magazine. So Social Policy uh, is a quarterly journal that, thank God, I don't have to write it all. I just have to try to edit and make sure it comes out on time, you know, every quarter. The journal has actually been going 47 years. We just put out 40, you know, 47 number one. So you didn't start it. No, we didn't. We took it over uh, maybe 12 or 13 years ago, and it's one of those things where it was, uh, and you know how this works, Carrie, it was just an opportunity that we were smart enough to be in the right place and catch the ball as it came into our hands without fumbling it. A colleague, community organizer in on the West Coast, had somehow ended up uh, taking it over from one of the founders, and I never quite understood how that evolved. But he'd gotten into a situation where he wasn't keeping up with the finances. Uh, he calls me and says, look, I need to talk to you. When, when, when might be possible? Well, I was in Japan. I said, well, look, I'm flying right through SFO on the way back home. Glad to meet you and have a cup of coffee. And this turned out, first he wanted us to see if we could straighten out the the finances for him. He hadn't billed anybody for a year. He hadn't put out any issues. It was a hot mess. So I was familiar with social policy. I'd read it from time to time and knew the history. And so we said, sure, and then took it over. And then one thing led to another. Um, We got it back on schedule. And it wasn't too long before my friend Mike Miller said, well, you know, why don't you make me just a contributing editor and you all take the whole thing over? And we were glad to do it. It's been a great journal. It had a good mis- – once you cleaned all the mess up, uh, it had a great business model. And you get to, you know, talk about what you're passionate about. We get to have people write about uh, – it's got a – it's in libraries all over the world. So we have a large academic readership. Uh, we have a lot of activists and obviously organizers who read it. So it's a way that people can look at policy questions, organizing trends, where unions are going. And how to organize? Does it kind of help you learn how to organize something? Because how would you go about starting a movement today? Well, you wouldn't – I mean, social policy can't tell you how to do that. It can tell you why you should or what might happen to you. But to actually look at starting an organization, you need to talk to people and work with people who are doing the work itself. Uh, In your local community? Yeah, I mean, we end up training a lot of people around the world who want to organize, and uh, that's how we build organizations is people who 
tried this, that, and the other, and come to us and say, okay, you know, we're in Bristol, England, and uh, here are the issues, and we've tried X, Y, and Z. Uh, could you work with us to help build an acorn uh, here in Bristol that could make a difference? And Are you still open to suggestions on new ideas? Every day. I mean, if you're not learning, I mean, one of the, the exciting things about doing the work I do is uh, you literally learn something every day. Uh, you get to meet new people. You, If you don't, if you're not growing, you're dying. So if you're not adapting to new technology and new ways of doing things, uh, uh, you're not able to build organization. You know, getting ready for this show, I was like, you know, they're doing this show every week. Is You know, it's kind of takes some work. On my interview show, when people call me, I said, 52 weeks a year. I can fit you in sometime. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you're you're like, you know, you have to do your homework. It's kind of like going to college. You're like, oh, I've got weight on. I've got to go do research and learn about weight. And every time I put it off, and then when I do it and the show comes, I am so happy to do this show because I learn so much. I did not know Acorn was founded in Arkansas. I did not know anything about you until I read about it, and I'm so inspired. I am a well-kept secret, and if you didn't have such a great show here, I would have been able to keep that secret longer. Um, <laughs> what does it mean to be middle class today? To keep up, I read a lot of newspapers. I keep up with a lot of news, and the definition of middle class keeps going up higher and higher. I mean, There are a lot of misconceptions about what middle class is. I think so, and to the degree Ivanka Trump believes if there's a child court credit, it ought to go to people making a half million dollars. If if a half million dollars isn't rich, that's not middle class, I don't think. I I think every American should try to educate themselves like we were talking about, and I feel that a lot of people are lazy and turn on whatever shock jock or whatever they want to hear, whatever aligns with what they want to believe, instead of trying to learn more. And recent, I am a documentary lover. And oh, okay. I, I recently watched Robert Reich's documentary. He worked for Nixon, he worked for Carter, and he worked for Clinton as his labor secretary. And for you listeners out there that really want to know what's going on with the middle class, you cannot find out in today's mainstream media but if you watch this documentary, he is a Harvard teacher, and you get to watch his class. And it is easy to understand with lots of graphs and some good music, which always makes things good. I think everybody exactly. sh- at the University of Berkeley now, right? Oh, Berkeley. You're yeah. right. Not Harvard. He was Berkeley. at Harvard for a long time. Um, yeah. Have you watched that, I guess? And you probably no, read his but books. I, you know, I had to deal with Reich when he was labor secretary. Tell me. An organizer who worked for me in welfare rights in Boston was his deputy secretary, so ran the department. So literally we started the living wage campaign in Acorn because uh, uh, Reich was on an elevator coming down to the Department of Labor when I was there to have lunch with my my colleague, uh, Thomas Patrick Glenn III. And I said, what's the chance of an increase in minimum wage? And he said... Uh, you know, president, which was, you know, uh, President Clinton had decided everything was health care, so he didn't think there was any chance of a raise in the next year or two. Well, by that point, we'd been through, you know, the ringer already waiting, so we were convinced there wasn't an increase in minimum wage coming, so we had to find a way locally or at the state level to do it, and that's what ended up, you know, years later, we did 100 campaigns. I think that this is really profound that I heard that I had no idea. And they talk about this divide in America's riches. In America, 400 people have more wealth 
than half of the population of the United States. If you take the United States, the map, and divide it straight in half, 400 people have half of the wealth of America, and all the rest of the people of America have the other. Did you know that? I did yeah, not I, know that until I started researching. I have to do this People's Daily News that played right before your show every day. So those kind of factoids, that's part of the People's Daily News. So. And it cannot trickle down ever. If they had a bank of secretaries spending all their money as fast as those 400 people could, there's no way that it could get down. They could not buy 25 pairs of jeans a day. They could not buy a car a day. They could not buy pillows for sheets. They could not buy tiles. They could not buy food. They could they never buy flags and banners. They could never spend enough money for it to trickle down and get into our economics. It's uh, you know the divide, the inequity of wealth is obviously uh, one of the critical issues of our time. I mean, it's never been good, but it's gotten terribly worse. And many people argue, I and mean, certainly uh, prominent economists, that this is going to cripple our ability to grow. Um, and part of this has to do with the amount of, you know, for all of our goodies on the, you know, Silicon Valley, part of this concentration has to do with so much uh, wealth going to so few people in the valley that just doesn't spread. You know, we are richer, I think, than we've ever been. Isn't that right? Well, certainly the our GDP, know, gross, are, yeah, gross national product is very high. And our productivity is very high. It's through the roof, particularly compared to how little we pay. Yes, yeah, so it's odd to think that the middle class doesn't have any money. Today, in, in 1978, the average man made $48,000, according to this documentary I watched. And today, he makes $33,000. And a CEO in 1978 made 350000 and today makes ten, millions. Ten times that, at least, yeah. Millions. So without the middle class buying and selling, and shopping, there is no economy, right? Well, I think, you know, certainly part of the political argument is that this sort of alienation of a lot of the middle class and their desperation about their situation is part of what led to Donald Trump being elected president. So, frankly, it was sort of, uh, you know, ironic that some of his uh, economic arguments were to the left of what, uh, you know, Secretary of State Clinton's were. So you just have a... What do you mean by that? I mean, he was arguing around trade and jobs and creation of jobs for the middle class and the Rust Belt in a much more aggressive way than she was. Do you think that he's got the ability to do that? No. Do you think that his policies... He runs a family business. <laughs> That's what he knows how to do, and he's making the White House into a family business. So God knows what we're in for. So, yeah, I, I'm not optimistic that he can deliver on this. Uh, I'm just saying if you talk about the anger and alienation of the middle class, uh, you know, this has been a country that prided itself on a lot of people being part of the middle class, and now that middle class feels disenfranchised, underemployed, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I hope that people will go and watch his movie, Inequality for All. It's really educational, and I don't think I didn't is it on realize. YouTube or you can watch it? it on Netflix. Okay. You can watch it on demand. Uh, it's uh, this is Robert Reich, who's a uh -huh. former Secretary of Labor under in the Clinton administration, was a Rhodes Scholar comrade of uh, Bill Clinton's when they were both in uh, in England, and mm -hmm. uh, he's become a sort of a critic of some of those policies and 
I was a critic of some of the uh, Obama policies, but he's now at the University of California at Berkeley. Yeah, and the documentary is called Inequality for All, and it's really easy to understand. You've done so much, Wade. We're at the end of our program. What are you most proud of? It's got to be Acorn. Oh, absolutely. Or is it your I, coffee shop in New Orleans? No, no, no. I drink the coffee. I work with Acorn. Um, you know, they, people say, well, are you, are you at the coffee house? No, I'm never at the coffee house. Uh, but are you really? Not ever? Luckily, we opened a second location that's downstairs from my office. And oh. So next door to me is going to be our new radio station, so I can say I'm there more than I'm here. And down below, I can go down and get a cup of coffee. So life is good. Uh, but certainly, I'm proud of everything I, can t- I have done with Acorn and continue to do it uh, with Acorn. And I just hope I'm able to work as long as I can to You're going to work forever. Happen. I'll, I'll, you know... I'll have my boots on. There's no question about that. If your mother's 94, mm-hmm, you will. We'll so see. if you go to New Orleans, go to the Fair Grinds Coffee House. It's Wade's Limited Liability Corporation, and it's a social venture business experiment, and it donates its profits and available gross revenue to developing countries where his coffee beans are grown. And it's imported directly into the Port of New Orleans and roasted locally, thus benefiting community jobs. Wade, this cigar's for you for birthing so many businesses. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> Carrie, it's a great show. I'm so glad you twisted my arm to be on. We had I'm a lot of fun so, today. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Me. Tim, who's our guest next week? It is Jean-Paul Francoeur from JP Jean-Paul Francoeur, JP Fitness. Yes, he is a personal trainer. If you have a great entrepreneur story and you'd like to share, I'd love to hear from you. Send a brief bio and your contact info to questions at upyourbusiness.org, and someone will be in touch. And finally, to our listeners, thank you for spending time with me. If you think this program's been about you, you're right, but it's also been about me. Thank you for letting me fulfill my destiny. My hope today is that you've heard or learned something that's been inspiring or enlightening and that it, whatever it is, will help you up your business your independence, or your life. I'm Carrie McCoy, and I'll see you next Friday. Until then, be brave and keep it up. You've been listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. Want to hear today's program again or want someone else to benefit from it? Jot this down. Within 48 hours, the podcast will be available at upyourbusiness.org or at flagandbanner.com. Again, that's upyourbusiness.org. Click on the tab labeled podcast. There you'll find today's segment with links you heard discussed on this program. Carrie's goal to help you live the American dream.